promised to take all that was pleasant in the eyes of Ahab, king of Israel. And through a messenger, Ahab sent a warning to Ben-Hadad. And he's told him, don't boast as one who's already put his harness off. You haven't even put your harness on for war. Don't boast as one who puts his harness off. And we talked about what that meant. And if you need a review on it, you can go back and listen to the lesson recorded on Facebook from last week. And we left off there in verse 16. I hope you're in 1 Kings chapter 20 by now. There in verse 16. And let me read it and then I have some further commentary on it and then we'll move on. And they went out at noon, but Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the pavilions, he and the kings, the thirty and two kings that helped him. The ones who went out at noon were the 232 young men of the princes whom Ahab sent out to meet these Syrians who had threatened to do harm to Israel. And I want you to notice in verse 16 that there were 32 kings who helped Ben-Hadad. It says they helped him. Have you ever had someone help you do something and you wish they'd stop helping you? (laughs) Well, I was that little boy. I like to help my daddy work on cars and change the oil. And man, I could make a mess out of something in a hurry. And so he had to stop and help me clean it up. But he still let me do it because he was my daddy. But these kings were helping Ben-Hadad. And all they were was a bunch of yes men. Yes, king, whatever you want to do. And not one of them said, hey, Ben, those are God's people. Those are God's chosen people. I don't think we want to lift up our swords against them, Ben. But they didn't do that. At least we don't have it recorded here in the scriptures for us. They either agreed with him. Oh yeah, let's take on Samaria. Or they didn't say anything at all. Which is just as bad. In fact, it's one of the reasons that our country and in fact all the world is in the trouble that it's in. Is that so many people who don't agree with the wrong being done, just don't say anything at all. They say, well, I would never do that, but I'm not going to speak out against it. And so these men, these kings, people in positions of authority who were used to making decisions and giving orders, all of a sudden didn't have anything to say to Ben-Hadad except perhaps, amen, we're with you. Now, here is a good place to understand one of the Proverbs, and it'll be a long time till we get to this one, so you'll probably forget about this unless you write it down in your notes. Proverbs 27, verses 5 through 6, applies to this very situation. Proverbs 27, verses 5 through 6 says, Open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of the enemy are deceitful. What does that mean? 
It would have been better for these kings who were helping Ben-Hadad to stop him and say, wait a minute, you're wrong. You don't want to do this. You don't want to touch the apple of God's eye. Because God's word said that whoever blesses Israel will be blessed and whoever curses Israel will be cursed. God will come against them. He's done it before and he'll do it again. That would be open rebuke. And that's what Ben-Hadad needed from these kings who helped him. But they gave him the kisses of an enemy rather than the wounds of a friend. He needed an open rebuke, someone to figuratively, not literally, figuratively slap his face, wake him up, shake him, and say, don't do it. These 32 kings are just about as good as the North Korean cabinet and their legislature, which is called the Supreme People's Assembly. Why, they have unanimous votes every time they meet. Whatever the dictator says at the time, the supreme leader as they call him, or dear leader as they're forced to call him, none of them dare oppose him. To do so would be a sure death sentence. And so they're like these 32 kings. They said, we vote with the supreme leader. Now let's look further into the military tactics of the drunken king, Ben-Hadad, verse 17. And the young men of the princes of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out, and they told him, saying, There are men come out of Samaria. Imagine this military strategy, first of all, by the children of Israel, and then, secondly, the response to that military strategy by Ben-Hadad, king of Syria. Samaria, or Israel, we'll just use those interchangeably, sent 232 young men of the princes of the provinces out to meet the Syrian army. And they are apparently in plain view. Or at least they were spotted by the Syrian reconnaissance soldiers. And when you look in the text in verse 17, it says, And Ben-Hadad sent out. The implication is that he sent out some soldiers, some men, spies, to see what the Sumerians were up to. And the report was, there are men come out of Samaria. Now, verse 18, and he, that's Ben-Hadad, said, whether they be come out for peace, take them alive, or... Whether they be come out for war, take them alive. Now, a sober king would have said, hey, wait a minute, this looks like a trap. Sending so few people, so few men out to take on the mighty Syrian army. This is a trap. Don't fall for it. Hang back. Wait. See what's next. What hope would 232 Sumerian young men have against the Syrian army? And knowing those impossible odds, why else would they be sent out like this, except to set a trap? You know, a drunken king becomes haughty, prideful, short-sighted, 
And in this case, he doesn't realize he's about to send his men into an ambush. Last week, I read Proverbs chapter 31 in verse 4. It said, It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink. Verse 5 of that chapter tells us why that's so. It said, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. So what was Ben-Hadad doing? He was perverting and forgetting. Not only the law, not only the judgment of the afflicted. If he forgets and perverts those things, then he will also forget sound military strategy. And pervert that as well. And he did that here. And the 32 kings who were drinking with him. Helped him to do that. In 1 Kings chapter 12. You may remember. When Rehoboam. Took the throne of Judah. And his father's wise men. Tried to counsel him. His father was Solomon. And those wise men who served under Solomon, tried to counsel Rehoboam by saying, serve the people and speak good words to them. And that's a paraphrase, but some of those words were in that text. What did Rehoboam do? He ignored that wise counsel to serve the people and to speak good words to them. Instead, he listened to the counsel of the young men he grew up with, his running buddies, who were full of all kinds of wisdom, weren't they? They knew better than the old sages. Well, they didn't, but they sure thought they did. And here's what those young men told Rehoboam. Thus shalt thou speak unto this people that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, but make thou it lighter unto us. Thus shalt thou say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. And now whereas my father did lead you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father hath chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. Now, Rehoboam paid a heavy price for listening to those unwise young men. Just like Ben-Hadad will pay a heavy price for being helped by these 32 kings. Verse 19. And by the way, I think every president needs people like this in his cabinet in the legislature, and whoever, and this is probably the most important relationship outside of his marriage that a president will ever have in office, and that is, who's his pastor? Who's the one giving him spiritual advice? I would like to have been a fly on the wall for the, I believe it was five presidents, Billy Graham counseled, and perhaps some of the things he told them were not things they wanted to hear. I certainly hope so. That's help. 
When you tell somebody something they don't want to hear, but something they need to hear. Now, verse 19 says, So these young men of the princes of the provinces came out of the city and the army which followed them. Now, in verse 17, it said these young men went out first. So the army which followed them in this text must have followed them either at a distance or more likely covertly. They were in hiding because they weren't necessarily spotted by these Syrian reconnaissance soldiers. Ben-Hadad's spies only reported that men came out of Samaria, not the entire army. Verse 20, And they slew every one his man, and the Syrians fled. And Israel pursued them, and Ben-Hadad the king of Syria escaped on a horse with the horsemen. This was an ambush, wasn't it? Just like we thought when we looked at the verses preceding this. And in this ambush, the Sumerians won all of the one-on-one battles. Now, we don't do so much one-on-one fighting anymore and haven't for, for many wars. But for most of history, those wars, those battles involved a lot of one-on-one, hand-to-hand, weapon-to-weapon fighting. Spears and swords and knives and clubs and axes and maces and all of that. And the Sumerians won every one of those one-on-one battles according to the scripture. And that's unheard of. You would expect some from this army to prevail and others from this army to prevail. And at the end, whoever had the most standing was the winner. And it came at great expense to both armies. Because they were certainly not going to win all of the one-on-one battles. So the Syrian soldiers who witnessed this decided to turn tail and run. (laughs) How brave. Ben-Hadad, the king of Israel, or excuse me, the king of Syria, the head of the Syrian army and all of its government, was willing to escape rather than to fight with his men until the end. I wonder if he was still drunk. Why would he not be? Drunks make a lot of bold statements, don't they? Tough talk. The great Marine General Chesty Puller once said this about leaders in the field. He's talking about officers, commissioned officers, lieutenants and above, I assume. He said, I've always believed that no officer's life, regardless of rank, is of such great value to his country that he should seek safety in the rear. Officers should be forward with their men at the point of impact. Ben-Hadad would have never made a U.S. Marine, would he? Nor a soldier, nor a sailor, nor an airman, (laughs) nor any (laughs) of any military branch because of his lack of bravery. So he was a drunk king with a lot of authority who spoke great swelling words And when the heat of the battle was on, he turned tail and he ran. How would men have any confidence in him after that at all? But he preserved his life for a moment. Verse 21, And the king of Israel went out and smote the horses and chariots and slew the Syrians with a great slaughter. Now, there were some who escaped, as we read, 
and there were some who didn't. And although there was a complete slaughter of Syrian soldiers and chariots and horses of the Syrian army, the leader escaped, and some of his men went with him. And what always happens when the leader of evil escapes? See the next verse. Verse 22. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said unto him, Go, strengthen thyself, and mark, and see what thou doest. For at the return of the year, the king of Syria will come up against thee. What happens when the evil leader escapes? He always comes back. He doesn't say, you know what, I'm just going to leave them alone. It's not right for me to attack Israel, Samaria. And so the prophet told the king of Israel, Ahab, who had just slain all of these soldiers from Syria and all the horses and busted up all the chariots, and who probably walked away fist bumping his fellow soldiers and said, yeah, we did it. We got them. We won. That prophet said, get strong. Get savvy. Get set. Ben-Hadad is going to be back. Just like the devil, after he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, Ben-Hadad also departed for a season, but he would be back. When Lucifer sinned in heaven, God cast him and his disobedient fellow angels out of heaven. And Lucifer's name was now Satan. But being deported from heaven didn't stop Satan. He continued his evil ways and he recruited more followers. You know how he recruits followers among men? He really doesn't have to do much except just tell them, you know what, that gospel they keep preaching at you, you don't need that. You're a good man. You're a good woman. You're doing fine just like you are. That's all he's got to do. That's an easy recruiting tool is to go up and tell somebody how wonderful they are or that they don't need all of that religious stuff. They need to have fun and on and on and on. When Jesus died on the cross, that did not stop Satan from continuing his evil ways, did it? And gaining more followers. He's still doing it. He keeps coming back. And so what has to happen to him? He must finally be destroyed. And that's the day we're looking forward to, isn't it? When he is finally destroyed. There's no more coming back. There's no more returning at the first of the year to pester us and afflict us again and again and again. And when Satan and his angels and all unbelievers are cast into the lake of fire, that will be the end of him. He'll not come back at the return of the year, and we'll never have to strengthen ourselves again and mark and see what we do that we may go up against him in battle because it will all be over then. And were it not for the Lord, Ben-Hadad and the Syrians would have crushed the Sumerians. And if it weren't for Jesus, Satan would have us bound and crushed and destroyed without remedy. So the prophet here advises Ahab, Get ready for the spring, get ready for the return of the year, rather than resting on your laurels. Verse 23, 
And the servants of the king of Syria said unto him, Their gods are gods of the hills, therefore they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. The gods of the hills, that's what the Syrians thought was the advantage for the Sumerians, is that they had gods of the hills, and apparently the Syrians' gods were not gods of the hills, or if they were, they were a weaker sort of god than the ones who led Israel. They believed in many gods, didn't they? The Syrians did. Some gods being stronger than others, depending on the terrain, (laughs) depending on the layout of the land. How ridiculous is the notion that there are weaker gods and stronger gods or many gods at all? How would you like to have been a Syrian theologian in those days, Brother Wade, trying to remember all of the gods and their strengths and weaknesses and where they would prevail? I bet they had something like baseball cards so you could remember them all and turn over on the back and say, oh, don't. Don't hold this card up if you're fighting in the valley. This is for the hills. What a mess. The hills give us a clue as to how the Sumerian army may have concealed itself while following those 232 young men of the princes of the provinces. So what did the Syrian servants say to the king? Once again, they're just like those 32 kings who helped Ben-Hadad instead of saying, King, we got whooped. We don't want to do that again. Let's lick our wounds. Let's build more chariots. Let's move on. Don't mess with those Sumerians. There's something about them. There were very few of them, and they beat us to the man and destroyed our horses and chariots. Don't know what it is, but we don't want to take them on again. No, they they gave the cry of the sore loser. They said, Let's fight against them in the plain. Rather than saying, Samaria has a tougher army than we do. They just blame the gods. They blame the gods and they said, let's fight in the plain. You know, sports fans today often blame the referees for the when their team loses. The referees are humans. They make mistakes just like players make, just like sports fans make, right? And the reality is that The team who lost would have been better off not making any mistakes during the entire contest and dominating their opponent to the point where the referee's input was very insignificant. I remember when I was in high school and this young man, a friend of mine, wanted to arm wrestle me. And I was still a young, gangly teenager just like most of them were, except for him. He was a bowler. And I didn't realize what strength he had in his right arm because he held that bowling ball all the time. And uh, anyhow, he beat me, beat me soundly. And I said, well, let's do it with our left hand. He beat me in the hills. I wanted to fight him in the plains. Well, you know how that went, don't you? I lost in the hills and in the plains. (laughs) And that wasn't why I started lifting weights. He was a good friend. But I thought about that. I thought, well, you, Andy, you're just a sore loser. You should have said, Gus, you're stronger than I am. You you beat me in arm wrestling. Good job. And I don't recommend arm wrestling, by the way, unless you want to go see an orthopedic surgeon at an early age. But let's move on. Verse 24. 
Let's look at verse 24. It says, and do this thing. So the Syrians are continuing to tell Ben-Hadad. They're giving him military advice. And do this thing. Take the kings away. Every man out of his place and put captains in their rooms. And you'll see the word room used instead of the word place. That's what it means. Put kings in their place. So these 32 kings who had helped Ben-Hadad, not very well, we might add, were to be moved aside and then captains, military captains, be put in their place. And the captain may very well have had the same rank as what we would call a general. It was He was the head over a military unit, over the army of Syria in this case. He would have captains, so he would have several regiments or battalions. I don't know how they broke that down then. So just in case it wasn't the fault of the gods or the fault of the geography, maybe it was the fault of the kings who helped Ben-Hadad. So they would put captains in the king's places. Verse 25, they continue giving their suggestions. And number thee an army like the army that thou hast lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot, and we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he hearkened unto their voice and did so. Rather than realizing what had just happened and going back to their hometown, the Syrians would come out to war using the same number of people and horses and chariots that they used in the battle they just lost. How much sense does that make? That's the epitome of pride. It's the definition of insanity, isn't it? You're looking for a working operational definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. There you go. The object of the war, I mean, war is a nasty business. The object of the war is to win at all costs. Not to play by these rules and those rules. Oh, we have the Geneva Convention rules and we have the Uniform Code of Military Justice and all those things that our military are supposed to abide by. But there are some times when that letter of the law interferes with the spirit. We want to prevail. And here, the object of winning at all cost was lost on Ben-Hadad's advisors. So when he ordered, when Ben-Hadad agreed with them and ordered the same number of Syrian soldiers to fight against Samaria in the next battle, Ben-Hadad overestimated his army, he underestimated the Samarian army, and he totally discounted God in this battle. With God in the battle, the numbers don't matter, do they? It doesn't matter. Say, well, the odds are this or the probability is that. When God's in the picture, math goes completely out the window except for the number one, <laughs> and that is there is one God. <laughs> in Judges chapter 7, Gideon led 300 Israelites in a battle. And the battle was against the Midianites and then the Amalekites. And the Bible says in that chapter that the number of those Midianites and Amalekites and their camels and all of that 
were as the sand by the seaside. In other words, there were a whole lot more than 300. And the key verse in that chapter, in Judges chapter 7, is not the verse that lets us know how outnumbered Samaria was, or Israel was, by the Midianites and the Amalekites. The key verse in chapter 7 of Judges is verse 9, which says, And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Arise, get thee down unto the host, for I have delivered it into thine hand. That's the key verse. God whittled that army down to 300. And those 300 were broken up into three groups of 100 during the formation of the battle. But the key verse is God said, I've delivered it into your hand. And in our text, Ben-Hadad not only discounted the Lord, but he even failed to make sure he had enough soldiers to win the battle. He said, I'll take the same numbers I took last time when we got soundly beat. That makes sense, only to a drunk. In my profession, from time to time, I have to arrest people who can't behave. And if one of them doesn't want to go to jail and perhaps he pulled a knife on me, I'm not going to pull my knife out and see who's a better knife fighter. That's not how I roll. This isn't a contest. I'm going to pull out something else, the handgun. And I'm going to do what I have to do to neutralize that threat, which might include shooting that person. If I have a backup officer to help me take down a criminal, I'm not going to say, hey, go ahead and stay in your car because it's not fair if you help me take this person down. I know he's big. I know he's on cocaine. I know he doesn't like the police, but it's not fair if it's not one-on-one. I don't roll that way. My job is to do what? Get him in handcuffs in my car to a jail as quickly and safely as I can. And if I need 48 officers or two officers to do that, that's what I'm going to do. I don't have any pride about that. Then, hey, Dad, had a problem in that area. What if somebody said afterward, uh, if, if I used two or three officers to subdue one person, if they said, well, that wasn't fair. You all had them outnumbered. Or if I had to shoot someone who had a knife. Well, that wasn't fair. You had a, a knife, and, or you had a gun, and he had a knife. I wasn't there to win a cage fight. I was there to make an arrest. Ben Haydad, if he had good military, if he had a good military mindset and he wasn't impaired by the use of alcohol, would have probably said the same thing. Hey, we need to take some more people because we got beat last time with this number. So we're going to change our strategy just a little bit. Now, we know because we looked down the road, he wouldn't have won anyway because God was in the battle, and that made all the difference in the world. But he was so careless, Ben-Hadad was so careless to try to match up with the Sumerians using the same number of soldiers he used when they got stomped in the hills. So what's Ben-Hadad doing? He's bringing a knife to a knife fight, isn't he? And he's already lost that same fight. But his greatest disadvantage is not numbers, it's not the Sumerian army, but it's the Lord who is fighting for them, for the Sumerians. Verse 26, And it came to pass at the return of the year that Ben-Hadad numbered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. 
He did exactly what the prophet told him would happen in verse 22. I love when that happens because when you show people who say, well, I don't know about Jesus coming back. Well, I don't know about people really going to hell and the great white throne judgment and all of those things that are future. When they have those doubts, if you can show them in the Bible prophecies that were made and then came true, made and came true, made and came true over and over again, then at least the evidence is there before them. When God says something's going to happen, that's exactly what's going to happen, and it does. If they still won't believe, you can show them all the evidence in the world, and it's not going to make a difference until they yield to God's Spirit that says, my word is true. So shake the dust off your feet, go to the next door. Don't beat your head on the wall. Don't say, oh, I need to come up with a better sales pitch. But there, there is a little bit for you to take away from that. The prophet said it would happen, and it did. That prophet gave the word of the Lord, and it, and it came true. So Aphek, in verse 26, was a city of the Canaanites that God had promised to give to Israel. And this was back in the book of Joshua, where you read about the distribution of the lands and, and all of that. And apparently, there were plains in that area, or at least valleys, because the Syrian army wanted a rematch with Samaria, but this time on the plains. And this is what the enemy does. Remember we talked a while ago about Ben-Hadad and returning because he wasn't destroyed and how Satan does the same thing over and over again until he will finally be destroyed. So if you ever think Satan is just going to leave me alone from now and I just wish he would quit bothering me, you're fooling yourself. First Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walketh about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's just what he does. That's what he was doing when he uh, approached God about afflicting Job. He was walking to and fro and up and down the earth, and God said, what are you doing? He's looking for somebody to afflict. Satan goes away only for a season. And he's not going to leave us alone any more than he left Job alone or any more than he left the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And until we go to be with the Lord and receive our new and glorified bodies, these fleshly bodies are going to be tempted to sin by the tempter himself. Because God tempteth no man to sin, neither is he tempted. Ahab's army in the first battle should have chased Ben-Hadad till the cows came home. He should have destroyed all of the Syrian army. In verse 13, the prophet had told Ahab, Thus saith the Lord, hast thou seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into thine hand this day, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. So God had already delivered the army to them. All the army had to do is take what God delivered. And even though the Syrians would not have returned if they had been completely destroyed, the sad fact is Satan has many evil forces on this earth, and somebody would have come back. The Syrians, you defeat them, here come the Amalekites. They are defeated, here come the Amorites. Here come the Canaanites. And so it is in our lives. So if you ever think, well, I got that one licked. I've got that problem licked. 
Praise God, you got another one that's going to be tempting you as long as you live in the flesh. And without walking according to the Spirit, it's impossible to resist evil, isn't it? The Bible tells us we can. It says resist the devil and he will flee from you. And you do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 27, And the children of Israel were numbered and were all present and went against them. And the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids. But the Syrians filled the country. These are the same, or this is the same type of mathematical disproportion that Gideon had when he faced the Midianites and the Amalekites. There were just a few Israelites and there were a whole lot of the enemy. So the ratio here was lopsided. And to show the Syrians, and I believe the Israelites as well, but certainly the Syrians, that God was the God of the valleys and the hills, they could throw their baseball card away for the God of the hills because we have one. He is more mighty than their false God. To show them that, God would deliver this multitude of Syrians into the hands of a small Israelite army, just as, just the same. Verse 29, and they pitched over, pitched one over against the other seven days. That means they encamped against each other. So one set the camp up probably on this side of the valley and another one on this side of the valley. And then they would meet there in the valley for the, the battle. Continuing verse 29, and so it was that in the seventh day the battle was joined and the children of Israel slew of the Syrians and a hundred thousand footmen in one day. Now we're familiar with that seventh day principle in the Bible, aren't we? That's a day of rest, that seventh day. And imagine that the children of Israel's victory would come on a seventh day. Now we're not told in this passage whether that seventh day was a Sabbath day or not, but it was a seventh day. And from that, what can we deduce? All Israel needed to do was rest in the deliverance the Lord had brought them. Trust in his deliverance. That's all they had to do. 100,000 footmen, it says. Seems like a lot for 7,232 Israelites if they were the same ones in the first battle. But as we shall see, Israel still did not smite all of the enemy. And with that verse, we'll have to close. Our time is up, and we'll pick up in verse 30 next week, next year. How's that? Yes. All right. Any questions about the lesson? Let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for all who assembled today to study your word. Thank you for your spirit, who is our teacher. And, Lord God, thank you for the faithfulness you've shown us throughout the year. And, Lord, we look forward to continuing our worship, studying your word, singing praises to your name, praying according to the will of God and encouraging one another. And, Lord, we pray you'd bless those efforts and lead and guide us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.